So for those of you that are visiting, I've been preaching out of this book for many, many months, and we're nearing the end of um, James. What I'd like to bring to you this morning is simply, I'd like to speak to you about being like Jesus. Being like Jesus. And how many of us don't want to be like Jesus? (laughs) That's what we are trusting that God is doing in us, is transforming us by the power of His Holy Spirit to be more and more like His Son, Jesus. And so I'd like to just... um, continue this morning speaking on, on this, this theme of, of being like Jesus. And remember, the, these kind of chapters that we've been considering is James' encouragement to his friends about what it means to be those that walk in humility, what it that walk according to the Spirit. And, and that really is to become more and more, like, more, more and more like his son. And so here we're reaching the end of the section of James, and um, he's been talking about their attitude to money, and in particular the way that they've preferred the rich over the poor. And there are a couple of things coming in this chapter that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you. Um, He goes on to speak about, to continue the theme of being patient when we go through hard times, but this time he's talking not to to rich people, he's talking to poor people, and we'll see that in verse 7. But he also goes on to address some other things. He says, uh, if, if anyone's happy, let him show it on his face. He kind of encourages us and says, if you're happy, smile. And so he brings this encouragement to, to the church. Uh, he also talks about, if you're sick, he says, if you're sick, then call for the elders and they'll lay hands upon you and you'll recover. So what does that mean? We want to look at the thing, well, what is, who are elders? What do they do in the church? Uh, what does it mean to pray for the sick? He says, offer up a prayer of faith. What is a prayer of faith? What does that mean? And he talks in the end of the chapter, he talks about effectual praying. The, the, he talks about, uh, uses the example of Elijah. and says, Elijah was a man like us, and he was effective in the way that he prayed. Well, what can we learn from those things? And so I really look forward to looking, sharing some of those things with you over the weeks ahead. But then today, I want to look at this one verse, which is a fascinating verse. It says, verse 6, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. And this verse is really a link between what he's been saying to the rich people, and in verse 7 you'll see he talks about being patient in suffering, but in this second half of the chapter he's talking to those that are poorer. And so this is like a link verse between those two sections. And he's already been quite upset with his friends who have strayed from Christian godliness. They've strayed quite far from godliness. He's, he's, never, he's never questioned that these people are saved. They're his friends. They're in the church. He knows that they're saved. But he has said, he has questioned whether they're being effective and whether they're being useful for the kingdom. That's what he's been trying to get into their hearts and into their heads. And so I've been sharing with you where he talks about um, just not aspiring to be increasingly wealthy and increasingly middle class. And he's kind of, he's, he said that was a problem for them. Um, he said another problem was that they were proud, that they weren't humble, that they were slandering each other in the church. They were fighting with each other. They did nothing for the poor. They weren't really concerned for the poor. And what they were really giving themselves to, their highest goal was moving to another town to make more money. And going here and going there so that they could accumulate more wealth. And those are the problems that he was trying to address with his friends in this church. And last week I had a, a look at the thing of being self-indulgent, not being self-indulgent people. 
And the problem was that this church thought they could really get away with being like that. They, they thought that God didn't notice. That was, the, that was the real problem. And the more I've looked at the Scripture, the more I've seen that actually this is a theme that goes through the whole of Scripture, this theme of, of living selfishly, this theme of not loving the poor. And why I say that is in Psalm 10, the psalmist is, describes a person who's got that attitude, and he says this. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved... Through all generations, I shall not meet any adversity. This is the kind of person. And the psalmist was, uh, was describing this kind of person. In other words, my life is just going to go well with me. And he says, this person, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit, and oppression is under his tongue, and, and mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in the hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He's describing a particular attitude that he sees, the psalmist sees, in other people. And it seems to be the same situation that James is talking about, this kind of lack of compassion that we can have. And so um, James is saying that it seems like those that are put down, those that are poor, have no chance of defending themselves, no chance of uh, standing up for themselves like these these exploited workers uh, that I described to you last week. And he goes on, the psalmist goes on to say in, in, in verse 9 of, chapter, of Psalm chapter 10, again describing this person, he says, He lurks in the ambush like a lion in a thicket. He lurks that he might seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed and they sink down and they fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Amazing, isn't it? Incredibly powerful. What he's saying is, there are certain people that think they can get away with it just because they don't see God doing anything right now. And that was the, the problem that James's friends had in this church. They had seemed to for, have been those that had forgotten that Jesus loves the poor. He loves the poor. In fact, Jesus was poor. Jesus came preaching good news to the poor, and these kind of Christians were a little bit unconcerned about that. And as I was just reflecting on the story of Job, Job's friends, his comforters, had this theology, that if you are wealthy, it's a sign of God's blessing, and if you are poor, it's a sign that God is angry with you, that there's some hidden sin. That's still a popular theology today. It's not the theology of the Bible. Not the gospel. The gospel says it's got nothing to do whether you're rich or poor. It's got nothing to do with God's blessing on your life. And I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop, said, wealth is not a sign of God's favor, and poverty is not a sign of God's displeasure. It's the same thing. All right? And so God, we looked last week, God had heard the cries of the poor rising up to him. And so James says this simple thing. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one, and he does not resist you. What does that mean? Well, he is referring, in a sense, to the poor, but the language that he's using reminds me of Jesus, doesn't it? The righteous one. It's a picture of Christ. He's talking about the Messiah. So why is he connecting, saying, you've murdered Jesus, why is he connecting that with how they've treated the poor? How does he make that connection? Well, I'd like to put this to you this morning and try and explain what I believe 
God would say to us out of this verse. It's especially interesting that that phrase, the righteous one, was used in Acts three or four times in the church in Jerusalem, which was the church that James was the pastor of. This phrase, the righteous one, the holy and righteous one. Acts 3.14, Acts 7.52, Acts 22.14. All use that phrase, used in the church in Jerusalem where James was based. And I'll just read Acts 3.14, which says, You denied the holy one, righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Making reference to the fact that they asked for Barabbas instead of Jesus. So this is the point that James is making. He has the connection. He's saying, if we as the church continue to ill-treat the poor and treat the poor badly, we are really repeating what happened when Jesus was crucified. That's the connection. That's what he's saying to us. If we mistreat the poor, we are making the same mistake that was made when Jesus was crucified. That's an incredible thought. What was the mistake that the people made when they crucified Christ? This is the first mistake. They stumbled over who Jesus was. Jesus had no standing in their society. He was the son of a carpenter. He was poor. What were they expecting the Messiah to be? They were expecting the Messiah to be someone like David, a warrior, a king, someone who would come in glory, and here they get a man coming from a back little town in the middle of nowhere called Bethlehem, and he comes saying, I am the Messiah, and he is poor. He's the son of a carpenter. He has no standing in society, and they stumble over that. They can't get their heads around it. It just doesn't fit their picture of what Messiah is going to be. And so from the very beginning, Jesus was an outsider for the religious class. And that's why they stumbled over him. And then he started acting like the Messiah. He started healing people and preaching the good news. And they accused him. If you read the the story in the Gospels, they say, what good can come out of Galilee? It's not possible that the Messiah can come from Galilee. And so James is saying that his friends are making the same mistake. The poor are all around them, and they've forgotten that Jesus was one of the common people. He was poor. Remember, if you read, um, his parents took him to, as, to offer up an offering at the temple as a thank offering. Do you remember what offering they offered? Can you remember? They offered a pigeon. Pigeon is what a pigeon was what the poor offered up. That's all they could afford. They couldn't afford a big sacrifice. They offered up a pigeon as thanks for Jesus. So that's the first mistake. Secondly, I believe it says this to ill treat the poor is the same as the sin of crucifying Jesus. In other words, if we ill-treat the poor in our communities, we are doing the same thing that was done to Jesus. The same thing. Remember Matthew 25. If you want to read that, I'll read that portion now. Um, Talking of the day of judgment. Verse 31 of Matthew 25. It says, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, every single nation on the face of the planet, 
And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you to feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you as a sick person or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers... So, you did it to me. He's saying, when you treat other people a certain way, you are treating me in that way. And the connection is this, that the brothers are the poor people. Who are the brothers that he refers to at the end of the, of the story there? The brothers are the poor that have preached the gospel, that have lived the gospel. And James, we remember when we're talking about James, he says, you, you murder and you covet and you fight. And he's saying, using that language, if we gossip and slander and we murder each other in that sense, and we withhold help from each other, and we despise that those are poor, we actually crucify Jesus again. Why? Because Jesus lives in his people. That's what, it's an incredible thought. That's what he's saying. And Paul had a supernatural revelation of this on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears in this vision. And you know the story, it's a blinding light and his eyes are blinded. And in that moment he has this vision and he hears Jesus say to him, why are you persecuting me? And he immediately makes the connection. He's been persecuting Christians. He's been, he's been trying to kill Christians. If he's trying to kill Christians, if he's not treating the church of Christ well, he's not je- treating Jesus well. He makes the connection just like that, Paul. And he, from that moment on, he begins to love the church. And so I want to say to you gently, if we mistreat each other, if we do not love God's church, if we do not love the people that God has connected with us, we crucify Christ. He lives in his people. There, I just, as I'm trying to reflect on this this week for my own life, I just think it's absolutely incredible. That's what James is saying. Third thing, I've got four points. Three, third thing this morning that I want to say out of this portion is that this simple thing. Those who do not fight back, those who do not fight back, are like Jesus. And as I say that, I just know, when I first realized it, I just thought, God, that is so incredibly opposite to everything that we are encouraged to to live like in our society. Fight for your rights. Get to the top of the pile economically. Do whatever you can to walk over anybody to get to the top. And Jesus says, don't fight back. 
It's completely opposite to everything that we are steeped in from our childhood. He has the point. At no point in the story of Jesus, we're about to celebrate Easter. This is, if you were Anglican, it would be, it's Lent time now, and there's this kind of process that the the church celebrates moving towards Easter. I've been thinking this this week. At no point in the story of the cross, of Jesus going to the cross, did Jesus ever resist his enemies or resist those that were trying to kill him. At no point. Not once. Go and read the story in the Gospels. Why? Because Jesus knew it was his Father's will that he would go to the cross, and so he didn't respond when people rejected him. He didn't even respond to the rejection of the Father. And the Father, his Father, turned his face away from him on the cross. That's what the Scripture says, because he could not look on sin. And for a moment, Jesus felt completely alone, even that his Father had not taken his gaze off of him. And he says, my God, have you forsaken me? That's why he cries that out. I read this this morning, a little story, uh, not this morning, this week, a little story about Warren Buffett. Anyone heard of Warren Buffett? He has a little story about Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, one of the richest people in the world, was rejected by Harvard Business School at the age of 19. After he failed admissions interview, he recalls a feeling of dread, along with the concern that his, of, of, over his father's reaction to the news that he hadn't been accepted. In retrospect, Buffett said, everything in my life that I thought was a crushing event at the time has turned out for the better. (laughs) Amazing. Rejection, though undeniably painful, does not have to hold us back from accomplishing what God wants us to do. How many of you have felt rejected in your life? You can raise your hands, because if someone doesn't raise their hands, then we're just all lying. Isn't it true? So it's, it's all of us. How many of you have felt rejected sometimes in the church? How many of you have been hurt by the church? By people in the church? All of us. Every one of us has been hurt by people in the church. Don't let that rejection hold you back from what Christ has called you to do. Just reflecting on the story of Jesus in the Gospels. You know, John 1.11, the citizens of his own hometown rejected him. His mates, those that he'd grown up, all these friends that he'd grown up with, they rejected him. Many of his followers rejected him. You go and read uh, John 6.66. He talks, he talks about the fact that he's got to die, and he describes it, and he says, unless you eat my body and you drink my blood, you can have no part of me. He's describing going to the cross. And it says at that point, so many were offended with what, he, what, with what he preached, they left him. These disciples that had been following him, many of them said, ah, that's too hard for us to understand. We are leaving. And they left. But it never stopped him ministering. It never stopped him praying for the sick. It never stopped him preaching the good news. It never stopped him going to the cross. He persevered in what he knew God had called him to do. And on the cross, he cries out, he says, it is finished. I have done all, Father, that you called me to do. And I was just thinking, you know, for my own life, when I feel feel rejected by others, there's something in me that wants to shrink back and just not be so bold. Because it hurts. You ever felt like that? 
And yet Jesus was able to live beyond that and still persevere for what his father had for him. Remember, Jesus understands and he always welcomes those and we will be accepted by him. And so he didn't resist. And if we are going to be those that become more and more like Jesus, there's something in us that has to embrace the will and call of God in our lives and not resist some things. He knew that the cross was the the will of God for his father's life. So if you read in Matthew, he didn't resist the soldiers. When Peter tried to fight the soldiers, he let Peter fight the soldiers. He knew of his coming death, and that's why he prophesied it at the Last Supper. He didn't resist Judas, even uh, Judas, Matthew 26, 14. He knew exactly what Judas was planning. He even tried to warn Judas, but he didn't retaliate. He didn't resist him. He didn't try and step aside any of the things that he knew his father would have him walk through. All of it was unjust. As we look at the Easter story over the next while, every aspect of it was unjust. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they took him to court at night. It was illegal to do that. So then they took him to the court in the morning. They took him to Pilate. They took him to Herod. And they took him back to Pilate again. It was a crooked deal from the very first moment. They were determined to kill him. Everything that they'd done was illegal according to the law. They lashed and they beat him. They found him innocent and then they killed him anyway. They undressed him, they gambled over his clothes, they humiliated him, and he never resisted once. In fact, he even helped them by carrying his own cross. And James is commanding these poor Christians in the church, he's commanding them because they did not fight back against the rich Christians those that had mistreated them. Those that have power and money are always those that are likely to treat the poor in the way that Jesus was treated. And history shows us that. And what James is saying to these poor Christians, if you can resist the temptation to strike back, the day will come when Jesus will vindicate you before his Father. Just as Jesus was vindicated by the Father, And Philippians tells us that he exalted him to the highest place in the universe, which is the right hand of the Father of God. God's promise to you and to me, when we feel downtrodden by others, where we feel misunderstood by others, we we are violated by other people. His promise to us is if you don't strike back, if you trust me to vindicate you, I will do it in such a way that you will be exalted. What a promise. And so, I was just thinking even in terms of history, those moments in history that we remember with an amazing sense of awe are those times in history where people who were suffering injustice did not strike back. Like what? Like Martin Luther King Jr., in this, with the civil rights movement in America. He, he did not strike back. He stood for what was righteousness and truth, and he refused to fight. He said, I'm trusting God to vindicate us. Yeah? Gandhi wasn't the same. He had a different motivation, but he didn't fight. He would, he would not fight. Passive resistance was his, the cry of his heart, and the whole of the British Empire was changed. He and Churchill had this big thing for years. And at the end of the day, he didn't raise a finger and the empire changed because of what Gandhi did. It's amazing. And we remember those moments in history and say that was a special thing. 
There are endless revolutions and wars all over the world, and there are so many we forget them. But those great moments in our, in our history that are those kind of pinnacles, we remember. And what is the heart of it? Trust God. Don't fight. Let him vindicate you. And so the cries of the poor had gone up to God, and he had heard them. And my encouragement to you this morning, where you feel downtrodden, where you feel oppressed, where you feel misunderstood, the best thing that you and I can do is to trust God for our vindication and not try and make it happen now ourselves. Last point. This is how we show we are being like Jesus. This is how we show we are being like Jesus. I want to say to you, one of the greatest trials you can ever walk through as a Christian is the trial of being mistreated by other Christians. When an unsaved person mistreats you, it's kind of you can handle it a little better because you don't expect anything else, do you? <laughs> but in the church, when people hurt you, oh, it is so sore. Why? Because you don't expect it from God's people. Isn't that true? The greatest trial that you and I have to walk through and pass this test is trusting God when we are hurt by people in the church. It presents us at the same time with an extraordinary opportunity to be just like Jesus because Jesus was also mistreated and judged by religious people in the church. That's who killed him. And you might say to and that is absolutely impossible. I want to say to you, it is absolutely impossible. The only thing that can help you live like that, that can help me live like that, is a supernatural thing. It's called the grace of God. It's completely supernatural. When you vindicate yourself and fight back, you are still in the natural world. You're behaving like a man or woman. When you refuse to fight back and you say, Jesus, I'm trusting you. I will not speak now. I, God, I trust you for my vindication. Even if it's on the final day of judgment, I trust you. I will not strike back. At that moment, you move to what is supernatural, just like that. And you are now entrusting yourself to a supernatural God who works in supernatural ways. What do we choose? Our own vindication, fighting back, bitterness, anger, natural thing, or do we choose to walk by the Spirit and say, God, I'm trusting you. I'll say nothing. You vindicate me. That's how we become more and more like Jesus. You see, there are two ways we can show that we're following Christ. The first is this, and we've spent a lot of time in this book of James having a look at this. It's controlling what is inside of us, our anger, our, our lusts, our desire for our own way, all that stuff, putting those things to death by the Spirit and learning to walk by the Spirit. The second way we can show that we are being like Jesus is to endure ill treatment patiently. <laughs> patiently. And this is the comfort that James brings to these Christians in, that are being mistreated in verse 7. These poor guys. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Such a short sentence, isn't it? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. And uh, Nicolene used this, this, this picture this morning as well. The point is this, how long do you have to wait for? <laughs> how long do you have to wait for until the coming of Jesus? 
<laughs> I can't say it any other way. That's the hard part. Until the coming of Jesus. Those early Christians, they, James says, you've got to wait patiently until the coming of Jesus. And it's been 2,000 years since that happened. I don't know how long it's going to be until the coming of Jesus. All I know that the Scripture says to me is I must be waiting patiently for that day. There's no absolute promise of God vindicating us until Jesus comes back. And then all that has been in the dark will be revealed and be made known. And so I'm finished with this. True godliness is being prepared to put aside your desire for personal justice and personal vindication and to wait. Even if you have to wait, even if I have to wait until Jesus comes back. (laughs) And that's only possible by the Holy Spirit. That's only possible by walking by the Spirit. And James has really, he really kind of led us into the secret already in James chapter 1. Because remember in James chapter 1 in verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which is promised to all those that love him. So here, my friends, we have a wonderful opportunity, a glorious opportunity to show that we are followers of Christ, that we don't strike back, that we are those that patiently endure until Jesus comes back. Is it hard? It's impossible without the Holy Spirit, without the grace of God. So I want to ask you this morning, and, I, and perhaps you're carrying something in your heart this morning. Perhaps you're carrying anger towards other Christians. Perhaps you're carrying anger towards me. I've many over the years, many times I've preached things from this pulpit and I know people are angry with me. Will you forgive me this morning? Will you trust God to vindicate your cause? I'm not saying I've got everything perfect. I don't. Perhaps there are people in this church that you need to, this morning, say, God, my cause, what I believe has been an injustice to me, I give that to you this morning and I will trust you for my vindication. I will not speak. I will not strike back. I will live by the Spirit. I will walk according to your grace. Perhaps there are those in your family. Nicolene shared something of her family where there's been a conflict. Will you trust that to Jesus this morning? Will you say, really, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm laying it down at the foot of the cross. I'm trusting you. You come and vindicate. When we try and do it ourselves, all it brings is pain and suffering. When we let Jesus do it, He changes us. His grace changes us, His grace changes other people, and in the end, He will vindicate with absolute justice what needs to be vindicated. Where are you going to put your trust this morning? I'm encouraging with all of my heart, don't put it into what is natural, put it into what is supernatural, which really is a work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to ask the guys to... uh, Come and let's worship together. But I'd like to pray. And I am going to ask you to respond this morning. You know what? We all need to respond this morning. All of us carry hurts in our lives. They might be from when you were a young child and there's still something that niggles. Give it to Christ this morning. Yeah? Give it to Jesus. Let him take that burden upon himself.
So I am asking you to respond. I'm not going to call you front to the front, but I am asking. It affects every single one of us. I am asking you to respond in worship this morning, however you choose to do that, and to ask the Holy Spirit to give you grace, to give you power. Maybe you want to sit. Maybe you want to stand. I don't mind. You respond to Him and say, Lord, I'm trusting you for what is supernatural in my life the only, that only you can do. Amen? We're going to worship together. Thank you. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, you can do whatever you want. Just let's respond to God and to His guidance and His goodness to us this morning.